You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, April 4th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Well, it was on this day, April 9th, 1959, that NASA announced the selection of America's first seven astronauts for Project Mercury. And we all we all know them as the Mercury 7. Cool. They were chosen because they had the right stuff, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that wasn't you even say a baby on the end of that. a pun. <laughs> no, it was the name of a movie. It was just, you're all just right. repeating the name of a movie. Like, that doesn't even count as a joke. Well, oh, yeah. The fact that everyone laughed, though, makes it count as a joke. <laughs> yeah, look okay. who's laughing. I think it was more his delivery. Could be. It was ironically funny, it, it was. right? <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was curious to find out how few people actually tried to get the job. Me too. 110 seemed a little Were there low, eight? <laughs> there eight people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Homer Simpson was the eighth. He got booted. But you would think something that high profile, that cool, that totally seated in science fiction you know to the to the public yeah but it weren't wasn't their uh, pool starting out very narrow meaning yeah, they were I mean, saying we were looking for test pilots yeah you know, who how many test pilots could there have been at the time exactly you needed like a really specific set of skills in order to even be considered for it I will guarantee yeah. you that there were 110 test pilots at the time because I'm sure what test pilot would not do that who wouldn't want to do that Chuck Yeager didn't yeah. want to do it. He was too it's cool for the Mercury program. Like he had better things going on than he that? He did. He had to break the sound barrier <laughs> and stuff. Oh, come on. And who were, who were the Mercury 7, Evan? Alan Shepard, Virgil Grissom, John Glenn Jr., Malcolm Carpenter, Walter Shira Jr., Leroy Cooper Jr., and Donald Slayton. All right. Cool guys. I mean, you've heard of John Glenn and probably Alan Shepard, but... I don't know if you held a gun to most people's head to ask him name name another one of them. I don't know that you'd get it. Maybe Gus Grissom. Gus Grissom. Mainly from the movie, though. I think from the movie is what really yeah. hammered those names home. Come on, Gordy Cooper. Yeah, if you if you watch the movie, then it's a lot easier. Sure. Well, I'd like to thank all of those guys for doing that. Totally kick ass. Well, we actually well let's start out with a, uh, a space related news item, Bob. We've spoken in the past about the Pioneer anomaly, and now. Someone claims to have solved this anomaly. T- tell us about it. Actually, a, a couple couple people are claiming it. Um, I love it, though, when scientific mysteries are resolved, but I hate it when the resolution is boring. <laughs> either, either way, it makes for some good science news. Um, this news is that one of the biggest mysteries in astrophysics, Steve, you said, the Pioneer Anomaly, has finally been solved. Slava Turishava, Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientist, and Victor Toth, who is a software developer, uh, will soon publish the results of a new analysis of, of the Pioneer anomaly in which the cause of the Pioneer's probe's unexpected deceleration is not new physics, uh, like uh, modified Newtonian mechanics, as a lot of people claim, but something mundane like uneven heat emissions from the craft as it cruises through the outer solar system. Now, there was also another team, and it was kind of confusing. Some articles talked about one team of researchers and other articles talked about 
uh, the other team. So it was just kind of odd that there were, it seemed like there's these two separate teams making contributions to the solution, but it was like no one article talked about both of them. So I was kind of confusing when I was doing my research. But the second Portuguese team led by Federico Francisco came to similar con- conclusions about the heat radiated from the probe messing with the acceleration of the, of, of the, of the craft. Uh, but this team also put special eff- emphasis on a computer graphics technique to confirm what they claim is the ultimate cause of the pioneer anomaly. Now, I guess we should probably go over quickly what the hell I'm talking about uh, with this anomaly. That'd be nice. We've mentioned it a few times, but it, the hubbub, this whole hubbub started in 1980 when JPL scientist John Actually, Anderson... Actually, I think this is a uh, kerfuffle. Oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, man. No, you're, no, you're, really, you're really stretching it there. Not, I, not I, a I prefer I would call I it a to-do. A to-do? <laughs> <laughs> The Hubble is not involved, so it can't be a hubbub. <laughs> right. Oh, that's right. Uh, I'm sure it might be involved indirectly. But, uh, all right, so JPL scientist John Anderson noticed something strange about uh, Pioneer 11 space probe There's that was launched in the 70s. on the wing. <laughs> that is noticing something Twilight strange. Zone episode, William Chatter. Now, the probe wasn't essentially where it was supposed to be uh, for, for each year of its journey, the distance it should have traveled was off by an amount equal to approximately the width of the United States, um, about 3,000 miles. I'm not sure how many kilometers that is. This may not seem like a lot considering that the probe covers about a quarter of a billion miles a year, but the velocity calculation and determinations is it's such a precise and refined science that even this tiny discrepancy is really like a gaping hole that screams for an explanation. Also, a similar anomaly was found with the uh, the Pioneer 10 probe, which was on pretty much the other side of the solar system. So nothing that Anderson and his colleagues looked at, um, whether it was the spacecraft itself or or the potential properties of the solar system that it was in, could explain this deceleration that they were finding with this with these crafts. And since these guys are real scientists and they know how the game needs to be played, they actually spent years going over possible explanations and discounting them one by one by one. Now, we all know a typical pseudoscientist would, would just say, well, it must be a UFO or it must be some aliens. Uh, yeah, some aliens. aliens. Yeah, they, they just jump to the, the extraordinary conclusions, but they don't actually spend the, you know, the time it takes to really uh, justify speculating like that. So they, they covered things like computational errors, friction, gravity from unseen asteroids, dark matter. Um, the, they looked at outgassing from the space from the spacecraft, which I call the flatulent hypothesis. Clever. So after years, yeah, after years of, uh, of this quiet research, Anderson finally went public in 98, and the news of this so-called pioneer anomaly uh, it just exploded. So now this latest news, though, seems to be convincing many scientists that, that the anomaly is likely solved. Now, Toth, which I mentioned a earlier, he was never satisfied that the original researchers adequately discredited the whole idea that heat generated by the craft was caused, that was causing this deceleration. So he created this 3D computer model with 100,000 points on it. Now, each of these points pretty much modeled the heat signature at that position for the craft for the entire 30-year life of the probe. So they, they had tried, using this model, they tried to account for the heat conduction across the surface and how, how the heat would have declined from the plutonium power source. And uh, they claim that this heat recoil effect can a- account for most of the anomaly 
But unfortunately, the details haven't been released yet. And Toth, I believe, actually kind of hints at the idea that that they can account for pretty much, mo- you know, pretty much the whole thing, and what's left is was pretty much inconsequential. It's within the error bars, basically. Pretty much, it kind of he was kind of being coy about it, but that's kind of my take. Now, uh, the, the Federico Francisco team also reevaluated the data. They claimed that it's not only these these heat emissions, the infrared radiation that was critical, but uh, they really stress how this thermal radiation reflects off the various parts of the probe as well, um, using a computer graphics technique called Fong shading, um, which was developed in the 70s, which models the reflection of light off of three-dimensional surfaces. They kind of use that these algorithms to, for infrared. They show that the reflections off the back of the antenna are the cause of the deceleration. Now, there seems to be – I really tried to look into this. There seems to be a little minor – controversy or maybe it's a hubbub or kerfuffle about this whole idea of the Fong shading and is this actually a good way to model this scenario and some people are saying that uh, it's it's not a physically based model that the whole idea with the Fong shading is that it's created to make the shading look good and look realistic but it's not necessarily reproducing the physics of reflection that you would think would be needed to accurately model what the hell's going on here. So it sounds like it's a it's an approximation of, right. of how things would reflect. So even though it may not be technically accurate, it, it's right. better than whatever else what we were doing previously to figure out how the heat would not only radiate from the probe but reflect off of other parts of the probe so that you can have a good sense of, of where the heat is ultimately going and, right. and that's what affects the net effect of that heat radiation on the acceleration of the probe. Yeah, so it seems, at least in regards to this, um, with the Fong shading ideas, that is it good enough approximation to really say that, yes, we have solved the pioneer anomaly? So, so the jury is still out. Even if the majority of scientists agree that the anomaly is, has been solved, you know that there's going to be, you know, a small group of scientists that are going to be, no, it, you know, they're just like too intimately, too emotionally involved with this to let, to let go. And, uh, so who knows how long this controversy is going to, is going to last. And, yeah. you know, until it's, you know, a little bit more definitively solved, I'll, I'll try to hold out a little hope that there might be some new physics in there. But, uh, but, uh, what I'll say right now is that it's not looking good. I mean, this is what I figured was going to be the answer. You yeah. Know, it's yeah. such a tiny anomaly. Did the Voyager spacecraft go through this, or we were able to track it perfectly? The uh, the pioneers are kind of cruising along. There's no gyros. You know, there's no thrusters affecting it. With Voyager, the uh, the thrusters and other and gyros, I believe, are would are swamping any potential uh, effect that we're, that we're seeing with the pioneers. So you can't use the Voyager to look into this. It is really cool that they can make these calculations, figure out that something is not right, and then a bunch of different scientists will get on it and start trying to figure out what it is. And I, I think, you know, even though they, they couldn't immediately figure it out and it took different people bouncing ideas off of each other and everything, it's just awesome that they can eventually come to the conclusion of what did it. What really kills me, though, is these poor scientists, if it does really turn out to be something something as innocuous as this, uh, this heat being radiated away, I just feel bad for these scientists that have devoted a good chunk of their careers to this. It's like, you know, they're looking for new physics, and it's like, oh, damn, it's the, uh, it's <laughs> the infrared radiation reflecting off stuff. It's like, uh-oh. Oh, well. <laughs> well, let's move on. The JREF, the James Rennie Educational Foundation, gave out their annual Pegasus Awards recently on April 1st, appropriately. 
five awards. These are to the five worst promoters of nonsense. Evan, get us up to date on this. Ooh, yes, this, ha- this happens annually, and each time April 1st rolls around, we look forward to these awards being announced. Uh, it's, it's picked up widely by many media outlets, news organizations, and other things, and it's an excellent means of certainly the JREF to uh, further promote the excellent work that they do. Uh, the first award went to the Scientist, which is known as the Scientist Award, went to NASA engineer Richard Hoover who recently announced for the third time in 14 years that he had found evidence of microscopic life in meteorites. Yeah, we covered this story recently. This is the guy who was looking at just little squiggles, microscopic squiggles, and saying that they're some kind of bacteria, but really does not have the science to back up those claims. Yeah, just because something looks like bacteria, that does not mean it is bacteria. I thought it would have gone to the arsenic life story. That seemed like a bit of a bigger story. I'm surprised. Yeah, but this guy's a repeat offender. I agree with this. This is his third time going back to this well, so it's more than just a a one-time anomaly. Plus, yeah, he was more slimy, you know, with his Journal of Cosmology and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. The next award went to the funding organization that supports the most useless uh, studies or practices related to, well, anything having to do with supernatural, paranormal, or crank ideas. Uh, This year's funder Pegasus Award went to CVS Pharmacy Hmm. for their continued work in the support of manufacturers of scam homeopathic medications. Congratulations, CVS. Yeah, congratulations to them. They are helping prop up a $870 million annual business in which uh, nothing is sold. (laughs) (laughs) So that's quite a profit margin, if you ask me. not bad. Now, CVS Pharmacy also started... Uh, offering their own store brand homeopathic products. How beautiful. Um, So they decided why let everyone else get a whole bunch of money. We want to get in on this as well. Smart. Shop (laughs) S-Mart. Nice, Jay. (laughs) The third award. Whoever whoever uh, got that out there, we love you. (laughs) (laughs) The third award was the Media Pegasus Award. And uh, this one who uh, this award goes to the person or organization that has done such a disservice to their television viewers that they uh, rightfully deserve this award. Dr. Mehmet Oz is this year's recipient. Mm -hmm. Deservedly so. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. He earned that one. I mean, this is the guy who absolutely sold his soul to become a media (laughs) whore, in my opinion. I mean, right. So at first, so Mehmet Oz is a surgeon, and I've never liked the guy. I've never liked it. But mostly, he gave pretty straightforward medical advice, and then would filter in, you know, sprinkle in a little woo here and there. Mostly the the, the touchy feely stuff, or you know, his wife was into Reiki and therapeutic touch kind of stuff. And then Oprah wrote him a check. Yeah. yeah. Then now he has his own <laughs> yeah. TV show. A on, nice on, check. And uh, oh my, oh my goodness! I mean, it's just. He's promoting the worst nonsense over and over again. Steve, he's like the classic like rock star guy. He's like the guy that just got into the good band and he's all happy and enthusiastic and he's getting up early to practice his riffs and everything. And then you zoom out and you zoom back in about six months later and he's doing coke. He's you know <laughs> running up and down the hallways naked. You know, he's drinking a fifth of Jack Daniels every night. It's just disgusting. I mean, he promoted analogy, Jay. <laughs> Promoted you know, John of God, who's a who's a fake faith healer, oh. and and John Edward, the mm-hmm. psychic medium yep. who apparently talks to dead people. 
by doing horrible yep. cold readings to gullible people. And that's right. And then uh, you know he had a recent episode on which I, I blogged about where he discusses he explains how homeopathy works. And, you know, always to a hilarious effect whenever you try to do that. And yeah, he gets it all wrong. It's like saying it uses tiny doses wrong. It uses non-existent doses, you know, for the most part. And, you know, had some other guy on there who just completely credulously promoting homeopathy, uh, completely misinforming the audience. I mean, Oz now is in the business of misinforming his viewers about mm-hmm. every quack uh, bit of nonsense that's out there. A complete disgrace. Really, I've not, I can't be more negative about this guy. I don't know. I bet you could if you really tried. Maybe. You give spit. me some time. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see, what he, let's see what Oz comes up with next week. So maybe he'll give us another chance. No, no credibility left, in my opinion. I get upset when I see someone that is supposed to have a good scientific education, understand the process of science, um, and through his his particular speciality, which is medicine, there's no way that he speciality. didn't... <laughs> he didn't just make a few um, mistakes. The guy made, like, epic moral decisions that were wrong. I mean, he's hurting people. This isn't just a guy that sold out for money and, you know, there isn't any harm attached to it other than his self-pride and dignity and respect. I mean, it goes way beyond that. He's actually yeah. causing people real damage in their lives by giving them b- BS information. And, th- and that, you know, you can't take away those bad things that you give people like that. That stays forever. You could, t- right. you know, that he could be causing the deaths of people as far as we know. Yeah, but do you think he's, Jay, you see, are you saying he's willingly doing this? Or he, he knows that this is baloney and he's still doing it anyway? Or is he just self-deluded? There's no self-delusion going on I don't on think here? he's self-deluded at all. I don't, I don't think that at all. I think he knew damn well what was going on and he made a decision. That's, what I, that's my opinion. He just doesn't care anymore, in my opinion, right. if what he says is true or not. Yeah. You know? yep. Yep. All right. Well, who's next? I think another, an oldie but a goodie is next, right, Evan? Yeah. Yep. The Performer Pegasus Award. This award goes to the performer who fooled the greatest number of people uh, over the course of the past year. And that goes to televangelist Peter Popoff. Man. Excellent. Well, Randy has a special place in his heart for Peter Popoff because he did an epic takedown of this guy back in the 80s. But now he's back. (laughs) An unsinkable rubber ducky. Yeah, Unsyn- absolutely unsinkable. I mean, you think that after he went bankrupt in 1987, that thanks to James Randi, uh, that this guy would you know be gone forever. The public is wise to him. You know, no more, no more of his tricks work. Well, not so much. So he's back, and as the 90s approached, he got back on television, uh, Black Entertainment Network. What airs his show BET? Black Entertainment Television. Why? Why is it called that? No. Why is Peter Popoff on it? Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty white boy. He is as white as they come and a horrible no. person. Yes. And uh, he's offering supernatural debt relief. That was his latest. Oh, yeah. Uh, now scam. we're talking. Uh, <laughs> if you send him hundreds of dollars, you'll be more in debt. <laughs> but you'll re- it's a, it's a, this is a supernatural way to relieve his debt. Mm, that must be his debt and relieve and, and relieve you of the burden of having to have those dollars, right? Yeah. Causing all this misery in your this life. This is how it works. You donate him all your money and then you declare bankruptcy and then you have no more debt. Supernatural. Well, I don't give him any ideas, Steve. Yeah, that's actually a really good idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> Last one. The Refusal to Face Reality Award goes to Andrew Wakefield. And this audience is very familiar with who Andrew Wakefield is. But this dovetails nicely into our next item. Yeah. Which is a little bit of an update showing that Wakefield, yes, still is not 
not relenting, showing no remorse. And, and, and very deserving of this reward. Right. Yeah, in case you don't know who Andrew Wakefield is, I'll give you a brief rundown in a minute. But first of all, uh, you should know that we have yet another measles outbreak in the United States. Uh, another mm-hmm. outbreak of a disease that we really could be pretty much rid of if only we could maintain herd immunity throughout the United States. Unfortunately, Minnesota had a serious outbreak, particularly amongst the Somali community. When when the children were brought into the hospital, I believe at least six children have been hospitalized as of last count. When they were brought into the hospital, they were uh, the parents were asked why the children weren't vaccinated, and the parents specifically said fears of the vaccines causing autism. Mm-hmm. The uh, Minnesota Department of Health has actually released a uh, statement condemning Andrew Wakefield as the cause of this outbreak of measles. So if you don't know who he is, he's the person who's responsible for the one study that most people cite as reason for showing a link between vaccines and autism. That study has since been, of course, kicked out of the journal it was published in, in The Lancet. Uh, Andrew Wakefield was disgraced and condemned by the General Medical Council in the UK. And since then, he has been traveling around the US spreading vaccine misinformation. So you'd think that at this point, seeing an outbreak of this disease in a community where children aren't being vac- vaccinated because of these false concerns about vaccines causing autism, you'd think that maybe Andrew Wakefield would just lay low and keep out of the spotlight. But no, that's just not his style. Instead, he has traveled to Minneapolis to meet with Somali parents. Uh, it was a closed-door meeting with no press allowed, so we can only really guess why Andrew Wakefield might be there speaking to parents. Um, if I were to throw out a guess, um, I would side with my friend and fellow skeptic, Elise Anders, who runs the Women Thinking Freely Foundation, which is uh, focused on encouraging parents to vaccinate and giving them actual scientific information on vaccines. Elise suspects that maybe he is trying to encourage these parents to continue to not vaccinate their children in spite of what doctors are urging them to do. Um, in the middle wow. of a measles outbreak, children being hospitalized, it, putting them at serious risk for injury and death. Um, Andrew Wakefield is in the midst of it, still encouraging them to not vaccinate their children. Now, you know why the Somali, these Somali uh, populations have been targeted? Uh, no, why don't you tell me? Because of an alleged autism cluster in these Somali populations, one in Minneapolis and one in Sweden. Of course, the uh, anti-vaccinationists have uh, latched on to this, claiming that it's due to vaccines in these Mm -hmm. populations. Uh, But in fact, epidemiologists looking at this data uh, have concluded so far that these are only apparent clusters. They're not really uh, proven at this point in time. Lots of apparent clusters like this crop up. 
And the first thing, the first question you have to ask is, is it real? Is this really a cluster or is it just an artifact of reporting or observation or whatnot? And so far, there really is no evidence to confirm that these are even real clusters. If Even if we assume that they are real clusters, there's lots of, of possibilities. It could be just a founder effect. You, know, you take any small population, they don't necessarily have the same genetic risks as the large outbred population. Um, some have speculated that uh, you know these are dark-skinned populations living in northern climates in Minneapolis and Sweden, maybe they have low vitamin D levels. You know, that could be another possibility. These are all sure speculation. That's we were at the speculation stage. We don't know if the cluster is real. We don't know what's causing it. But again, that that hasn't stopped the anti anti vaccinationists from leaping over several you know scientific steps and then just concluding, oh, this supports what we want to believe. That right. Well, that's what got yeah. them into trouble in the first place was right, right. taking any data they could and warping it to fit their their conclusions that they had already dreamt up. So now it's a pretty desperate fight to educate a community of people who are maybe a bit uh, more difficult to reach than our normal um, targets. You know, Elise, yeah. as I mentioned, you know, she has made a commitment to encouraging mothers to or encouraging parents to vaccinate. And so she's actually trying to work with the Minnesota Department of Health and, uh, local, the local Somali community to get materials printed up that are in Somali, uh, that explain what, why vaccinations are important. It's going to be a lot more difficult than it has been in the past. And that's not to say that it's been easy in the past to, to get this information out there. Right. So thanks, Andrew Wakefield. Thumbs up. <laughs> I won't give up. All right, well, let's move on. Jay, you're going to tell us, give us a quick update on growing hearts for transplants. Well, this is nothing new. I mean, you, uh, you guys have heard about this and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard about the process where they will take a heart and in the, the case of the research that was done by the uh, article that we're covering, they take a heart from a cadaver and then they strip off with a detergent that works on, on certain types of tissue. They, they take a, a detergent and wash away all of the cells and when you do this, what you end up with is like a lattice All the muscle work. cells. Yeah, it's all the muscle cells. I'm sorry. And you end up with a, a lattice work or kind of what, what they call a ghost image of the human heart. And it basically looks like a white balloon. And what the heart is actually, um, the superstructure of the heart is collagen. All of our organs have this lattice work or, or this, this infrastructure. And then what they've... What they've done over time is they keep increasing the size of the heart that they're using. So they experimented on, on you know, mice hearts and, you know, they keep increasing the size. And they finally got to the point where they can regrow the tissue on the lattice work and, and have it actually be a beating heart. Now, this has been successfully done, as I said, in mice and in smaller animals, but they've never had it work in a human-sized sample before and they feel that they're about two weeks away from getting this to work on a human heart now we're still quite a ways off now, this doesn't mean that in two weeks people can you know start the process of getting a heart made for them yeah so just um, to, just to clarify the breakthrough here is that they did it with a human heart they've done yeah. this with animal hearts before and they they are getting they're using stem cells to grow heart cells on the scaffold um, and it's it's essentially formed you know, a, a reasonable structure of a heart, but it hasn't started beating yet. That they're hoping that's going to happen within the next couple of weeks. Yeah, there's a few a few holdbacks on this that that uh, need to be mentioned. 
One of them is is that having the uh, cells just grow on the lattice work isn't isn't just it. The, you know, they have to grow to a certain density. They have to uh, deal with blood supply, which is which is always a factor when you're growing organs. It's not just growing the tissue there, but you have to grow the blood supply and be able to connect that that muscle that you in the heart or an organ to the person's blood supply. Um, another thing is that even if the heart does start beating, you know this heart would definitely not be able to beat strong enough to actually power a human body by filling it with blood. It's not. It's not at that point. They just want to see proof of concept happen with a structure of that size, and they feel that they're having, you know, they're having a great success so far. But they're waiting to see if the heart grows enough tissue to start beating, and then they'll test to see if if the cells are actually beating in time with each other and everything. Which everybody knows, you know, one of the key things about the human heart is that it no it contracts in time with itself. And, yeah, and, although I don't think that's going to be a huge issue because... Right, because they auto-synchronize. Yeah. I've seen two two muscle cells, two heart muscle cells connected together and they and after a few moments they, they beat in unison. So I don't think that's going to be much of a... To me, the blood supply, that's a deal breaker. I mean, you, <laughs> don't, you don't have a blood supply? It's like, hello? Yeah, but Bob, I think yeah, auto, the, the cells auto-synchronize, so that's not the issue. The real problem is that you won't have an electrical system within the heart, right? You won't have the pathways in the heart that allow the chambers to contract in the right sequence. That kind of structure is not is what's not coming out of this process. Just having the cells all contract at the same time is not a big deal. So it's not strong enough. It doesn't have an, its own intrinsic blood supply. It doesn't have its own intrinsic electrical system. These are major, major um, <laughs> barriers. So the, the, they're doing the easy stuff now. It's, it's good. It's a great – As they it's should. A, it's yeah. a good advancement. It's very encouraging. But there are still, there are still enough hurdles between this and building a transplantable heart that we can't say how long it's going to take and even this, if this technology will extrapolate to that or will ent- entirely new techniques be needed. But overall, it's still a success. It's still something to be happy about. I mean, they are achieving things that, that haven't been done before. And overall, I think research in these types of creations are, are very important because if we're going to be extending the human lifespan and, and uh, increasing the quality of life, this is definitely one of the things that we have to do is be able to replace organs. Yeah. Just from the idea that so many people die a year from not having organs that, that can get transplanted into them from people who have donated, you know, that's a huge issue. But another quality of life issue is the fact that when somebody does donate their organs, the, the receiver has to be on the, the suppressants to their immune system for the rest of their lives. And that, that by itself can cause a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. So if we can, if we can jump this hurdle... Not only will we be helping hundreds of thousands of people, but we'll be also giving them a much, much higher quality of life because their bodies won't reject their own tissue. This technology is a bit of a bummer, though. Uh, you know, it, How is it a bummer? It, because it's, it's good, but it's just like, uh, not co- I mean, you still need a donor. I mean, I want a technology that you could just take some stem cells and grow your own heart without needing a donor because that's going to be a fundamentally limiting factor is you still need a donor collagen understructure for your heart cells to be grown yeah. on top Bob, of. Bob, to me, that, yeah. to me, that's just like, damn, I wish, I don't know, it's just disappointing that they still, they haven't gotten away from that um, in this I don't in this know, technique. Bob. I, I think that's pretty significant. First of all, the the discovery that that is usable and, and, and critical in order to use this process. But not just that, Bob. You know, you got to think of it 
a little bit differently. This is where we're at now and research that we, we're doing now with growing this type of tissue and under the environment that we're growing it in. I mean, we're solving problems today that we'll need in the future in order to, to really pull this thing off. And, and I guarantee you, Bob, that they're going to be able to come up with another, another way to make that, that superstructure in order to build a heart or an organ or whatever. I mean, this is just a series of steps in the process of getting along the way. Well, I mean, it is yeah, interesting to think about this kind of technology and where it may lead. I, I, I think that if nothing else, the researchers are developing technical skills in, in using stem cells to create stuff that who knows how that will be applied in the future or what or how it might be useful. I, I'm not convinced that this approach, stripping down a scaffolding and then trying to build an adult-sized heart onto it, is going to ultimately work. It is, this may not be, again, may not extrapolate to an actual transplantable heart. The, the problems with this approach may be insolvable. You know, we, we may need to do what, what Bob says, which is to actually grow a heart from scratch, um, with stem cells, that seemed there might be some advantages to that. I mean, you know, we may have to to uh, more completely duplicate the conditions of you know a fetus and a, and a child. And in, in terms of, it's not just like stem cells in a vacuum. It's there's there are chemical gradients, and there's you know everything is sort of feeding off of everything around it in terms of how all of the tissues organize themselves and how all the the vessels and and whatnot form it meant to unfold as as a whole entity it's uh you know in terms of the developmental process so so it's more complex than the sum of its parts yeah it it is very compl- yeah it's very complicated so you know i think it's going to be tricky to try to get an organ to develop in isolation obviously the easiest thing to do is to just Grow just, just grow a person, yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. just you know, that, that's again, that's always we have the blueprint for that. Yeah, I mean, just to, but that gets really <laughs> awkward when it comes time to harvest the organs. Now you're just simply in an ethical. Uh, no, no, you're not. Not if you grow the body without a brain. Yeah, still, that, still, an ethical discussion is going to happen with that. I mean, it's true. It's just tissue at that point. Yeah, according to. You, but according to, <laughs> I'm not saying that I feel differently, Ethicists. but I'm saying that you know there's going to be a lot of people who feel differently. Yeah, well, that's tough. Yeah. It's that's a tough yeah, one ethically, a, and just the just couple billion devout people emotionally, think, it's tough. Problem. So you think most people would be okay if if there was just a completely isolated heart growing in a vat? So we're just growing somebody a new heart. But most people will probably be okay with that, don't you think? Right. right. I mean, there's yeah. always yeah. going to be the right. people who are going to not be Plain okay with God. anything yeah. we do. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But what if what if what if you you grow sort of a set of internal organs in isolation? Yeah, I think in general that's yeah. going to be all right. Uh, but what if it's in, it's encased in a rib cage? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Where's the, the line? Where's yeah. the line? <laughs> I see Is what it you're a saying, male yes, or female where, rib cage? Where's the line? And, well, just yeah. count how many ribs it has. I mean, you don't really need the limbs. That was a joke before I get... Yeah, it's got the ribs yet. You don't really need the limbs or the head. (laughs) Yeah. What if we could just figure out a way to just, you know, grow a torso? Make a torso. With all the the good bits in there, all the organs. And then I could strap that torso to my back, and if I needed one of the organs, I'd have it, uh, you know, ready to go. It could live off of my, my body, Steve. (laughs) <laughs> in fact, you could have a transplant, Jay. You could take your head, your arms, and your legs and stick it on the other yeah, torso. Yeah, move it backwards, yeah. So make yourself a, a conjoined twin after birth. But, but you know, even though Steve is saying this and he's saying it in a funny way to prod us, 
the idea really isn't that that crazy. I mean, you know, if it needs to be grown in that environment, mm-hmm. why would we say, no, let's not do it because those organs need to be encased with the rest of a human torso? That's because it looks too much like a human body, you know, and then we're going to be like, well, we have, we're, we're growing these headless, you know, it's a little bit too close to home. I believe the soul is in the spleen, <laughs> personally. <laughs> but, but I'm just going to throw my two cents down. Wait, let me just say this. I'm fully for the, the armless and legless, headless torsos <laughs> growing my next generation of organs. That's cool. It's like putting on a new set of body armor or something. It'd be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's either that. It's either that or, um, I mean, you know, if you could do an organ in isolation, that would be psychologically a little bit easier. I don't think it's any different than the, than the limbless, headless torso with full of the organs. It's just, it starts to creep us out a little bit when it gets too close to being a full person. But I do think that the other approach, I, I think I've mentioned this before, I don't know if this will ever pan out, but just thinking about it logically, would be growing the organ, growing your donor organ inside you. Yeah. Just yeah. grow it, grow it inside you. problems. Yeah. That reminds me of the ear growing on the mouse, Steve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Remember that picture? Yeah, but that's on the back of a mouse. I mean, if you're growing, where do you put, have the room for it to grow more? No, I mean, I mean, like in it. place, in the place that it's going to ultimately be. So, like, grow a heart off the aorta and then in a cavity, tr- in a try to cavity, get it yeah. to hook up the way it would normally hook up and replace your, your heart. It would probably be hard for things like the heart. A liver would, would be a lot easier, a kidney. Well, how about five smaller hearts? Just to. Just, Distributed around the yeah, a yeah. little little redundancy going on. How there. about a second yeah, I was actually, head? Yeah. Just like a cow has four stomachs. Zaphod, yeah. I was actually you know thinking in the same thing you were Eight saying, Bob. Eight. You and I have talked about this many times about how if you lose your heart or if you have a major malfunction in your heart, you're toast. But if you had five or six or twenty smaller heart spaces in your body and one of them went. The other, yeah. the whole system, you know, is still yeah. working. No? Yeah. Oh, I, I had two heart attacks <laughs> today. Bummer. <laughs> get the guy get have those backups uh, one more news item we got a ton of email on this one this is, a, this is an interesting item this is the uh, the child prodigy that challenges Einstein mm. I know you guys have read about this and seen it yeah. and there's many videos of this kid saying incredible things yeah so this is a 12 year old boy Jacob Barnett uh, who is, is clearly a, a child prodigy, a boy genius. He, uh, if reports can be believed, taught himself both like geometry, trigonometry, and algebra. And calculus. And calculus in like weeks. And now he's, he's taking advanced mathematical classes at Indiana University and apparently running out of classes that he can take, sort of going through all of them. Jacob also, by report, has Asperger's syndrome, which is considered to be at the mild end of the autism spectrum. I find that a lot of people that have Asperger's tend to have some type of upside to it as well with intelligence. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like a personality trait. So, yeah, if you, I don't, if I you don't can, think it's you know, necessarily in, inherent, though. It's not. I mean, it's not. You can have Asperger's without having the. Yeah. Uh, increased ability in math or engineering or whatnot, but people with Asperger's are often characterized as having sort of an engineering kind of personality where they they could be very good at at math, at engineering type problems, but they're kind of loners. They're not socially very skilled, so they're really good computer programmers. You know that that kind of a of a personality. So, but of course they had they range the spectrum to of intelligence, and they well. make up about ninety percent of our audience. Let's just point that out. Yeah. Love you well, guys. I, mean, it's, <laughs> I, I think that I, I don't know that 
that attaching Asperger's to the autism spectrum was such a good idea, honestly. I understand the reason for it because it's it's essentially all of the um, disorders of social ability. Mm. And you just put it on one big spectrum of, of uh, you know, and call it the autism spectrum disorder. But um, I don't know that they're necessarily part of the same continuum in terms of what's going on. Uh, the more we learn about autism, the more it seems that there are you know, real developmental problems, you know, that the cells don't communicate with each other, you know, brain cells are not communicating with each other as much as they should, for example. So I think, you know, in other words, I think like autism is, is a real developmental disorder, although it does absolutely have a range in terms of the, its, its presentation. Uh, whereas Asperger's, I don't know that it, it, it's the same thing. I think it might just be just part of this the range, the spectrum of just normal human variability in terms of how our, our brains work, you know? Yeah, I don't yeah. think I've ever seen uh, someone with Asperger's where you could really consider it debilitating in any way. I, I mean, maybe I, I just haven't seen severe cases of it, but... But I think by definition, there are no severe cases of it. Because yeah, because then it would, be mo- it would be something else, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is that everybody I know who has Asperger's, it once they get the diagnosis, it does help because they can then understand why maybe they're less inclined to go to parties, you know, and, and more yeah. inclined to work on logic puzzles. But it's not really a net benefit or a, a drawback. It's just the way they are. Except they're missing out on a lot of great logic party pu- puzzle parties, you know. <laughs> Steve, is it true they're going to change the name of Asperger's to Facebook syndrome? <laughs> They haven't yet. Just throwing that out there. It's good. good Well, you think about it. There are some people who are very good socially. They may not have a lot of math ability or be good scientists, but they're good politicians or they're good actors or whatever. We don't think of that as a disorder. Yeah. So people who are really good at computer programming or engineering or math but are are not that great socially, that's not a disorder. That's just a different set of strengths and weaknesses. You have different set of skills. Who's the best example on TV? Batman. House. Comic book guy. Sh- Sheldon, Sheldon, Big Bang Theory. Yeah, Sheldon. He, oh yeah, he Sheldon definitely, rocks. definitely has it. No, he doesn't. Because you, he's a fictional character. It's a fictional <laughs> but anyway, character, let's, let's get let's get back oh. to, uh, he's to, real. to Jacob Barnett. So Jacob has a number of YouTube videos out there. On some, he is teaching calculus to to the viewer. On others, it's. Um, you know, he's questioning the Big Bang Theory and the speed of light and you know, a lot of people commenting about how fabulously intelligent he is. But we got a lot of questions trying to put this into perspective. What's this kid talking about? Is what he's saying makes sense? You know, how, just how do we put this kid's intelligence into some kind of perspective? You know, it's obviously hard to say just based upon secondhand you know, YouTube videos, not knowing him personally or having any kind of direct interaction. But I think there are a couple of red flags in in those videos that that concern me. The first is you have a, his parents hovering over him with a video camera, basically having him do a horse and pony show, which I think could be counterproductive. But it also uh, highlights the fact that um, the kid's still 12 years old. So even though he has some pretty extreme intellectual ability, I think there's no question that the kid's a math whiz, right? He is a genius when it comes to his math ability. He also has a keen interest in science and clearly is studying a, a lot of advanced scientific concepts. But you, you, when you like listening to him talk about the Big Bang and the speed of light, he doesn't quite 
get it. It doesn't quite make sense there. And, and what I think is going on is that he probably has an exaggerated sense of his own ability, which, hey, if you're a 12-year-old genius, that kind of goes without saying, but doesn't have the experience or the maturity to, to question his own his own thinking on these areas or to put it into some kind of perspective. He sort of is, is pretty comfortable with the idea that he has just his random musings on these ideas has uh, debunked two of the, you know, the, the most highly regarded scientific theories of the 20th century. You know? Does it remind you of uh, Einstein's early thought experiments that he would play out in his mind and in his notes? No, no, not, not at all. I mean, those Einstein's thought experiments were actually very productive. Whereas I think this kid is, you know, again, it's the, it's the kind of um, sophomoric musings about these ideas where he understands enough to think about it in an interesting way, but not enough to put it into any kind of perspective or to understand that you can't just casually brush aside the Big Bang because you because you don't understand certain aspects of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel a bit sorry for child prodigies, you know, Doogie Hauser like yeah. kids because, uh, you know, I'm by no means an expert, but I've been very interested in I've read up on a lot of the cases and it seems to me like they're very intelligent kids yes um, but they tend to get pushed really hard by the people around them their parents and teachers and they build up these enormous expectations like they have to you know go right off to college and and all of this stuff and in the end you know by the time they reach their say 20s they sort of the, like the rest the rest of their their peers sort of catch up to them yeah uh, intelligence wise and then they end up just being an intelligent uh, adult but by no means crazy genius um but they they have this expectation that they have to continue to be really far ahead of the pack at all times but they they, they can't even imagine so. the pressure yeah yeah that that's true i find the same thing rebecca and looking at these the the child genius stories and, and what happens. And that's, that's, that is one theme that gets played out that they, they sort of level off as a, a very intelligent uh, adult, but, but they don't keep pace. You know, they're not as much smarter as their adult peers as they were, as, as they were of their say 12 year old peers. So yeah. um, they, they, yeah. So they're, they're less and less remarkable as they get older, which if they were, presented especially by very understandably proud parents but maybe they need to sort of get a little perspective they're, they're presented as you know some whiz kid super genius that becomes part of their identity and that identity fades from them as they get older because they're sort of less and less remarkable and, and they have more and more peers who as you say are catching up to them that's psychologically emotionally hard for them maybe to adapt mm. to that even if they stay uh, you know above their above their peers uh, again Without the skills, the social skills necessarily to to sort of work with others and interface with the scientific community, you wonder if they're going to become some lone crank laboring away somewhere and not really right. sort of be, being productive. Um, you worry about that too. Again, we're not trying to downplay the kids' smarts at all. And you know, when I blogged about this. A lot of people got very bristly, saying, "Oh, this is just a little intellectual jealousy or whatever." And <laughs> seriously, we're just trying to—we're we're asked to put this into perspective, and you know, looking into this phenomenon of the child prodigy, that this is the kind of things that happen. What, what I think these kids need is a mentor to really help keep them grounded. You know, not let them getting overwhelmed by their celebrity. 
to, to make sure that they mature in the other skill set areas, especially if there are ones that they're inherently a little weak on, like socialization, so that they become well-rounded, you know, functional adults who, who, who can use their smarts as a real tool to succeed in life, and it doesn't just become, like, again, sort of the, the horse and pony show that, that starts to pay off less right. and less as they get older. Yeah. Especially if, if you want to become part, if you've got smarts like this and you really want to be part of the scientific community and not be some lone scientist out there, which really doesn't exist anymore, yeah. you, you, you've got to be taught, you need a certain level of social fluency that I think uh, should be focused on much more than, than maybe these, uh, these super high levels of, uh, of mathematics and stuff. You should also, you know, take a couple, you know, really focus on this, this other aspect of your personality. Like you said, Steve, may be lacking it but just because of the nature of the Asperger's syndrome itself. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, that reminds me of something I heard, and I don't know, maybe, Steve, you can comment on this, but, um, and I, I apologize, I can't even tell you where I heard it. This is just something I'm going to throw out there. It's the idea that we will have fewer and fewer remarkable prodigies in specific fields as we move forward into the future because we're getting better at identifying um, Asperger's and autistic children and doing a better job of uh, giving them a wider range of abilities and teaching them how to not necessarily focus on very specific tasks and very specific fields. Thoughts? Yeah, well, if that's true... You know, there's a downside to it, and it makes me kind of sad because, you know, I think <laughs> we're all selfishly wanting the really smart geeky guys to come up with the uh, geeky guys and girls to come up with the incredible discoveries that we all benefit from, like our cell phones and all that. But stuff, do they so. really, though? That's the question we were sort of addressing before. But that's kind of, Rebecca, that reminds me of saying, like, oh, it's really, you know, unfortunate that the Soviet Union collapsed because now we won't have these, like, really superstar gymnasts because they won't these they won't be like getting these three-year-old kids and then training them <laughs> making that that's what china yeah, well, right, we still that's have, we still have china <laughs> but like when, when, when let's say that china collapses or whatever you know let's say right the, but the, i these, mean it's it's sort of true though isn't it i mean and i'm not saying that um you know it would be a good or a bad thing i'm just saying that it seems to me like it has the sheen of truth about it that that might I mean happen. there's I can, there's a certain superficial plausibility about it I grant you that but I, I don't know that it's necessarily true it may turn out that we turn the the kids that are disappointing in the ways that we were talking about whereas they may be really impressive when they're younger but they don't necessarily pan out to be like very high-functioning, productive scientists, we may be turning them into, into maybe less of a horse and pony show but more of a productive scientist when they get older. Yeah. yeah Who knows? True. I mean, I think if it's... How do you measure uh, that? Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, I think you, the best you could probably do is just try to collate some anecdotal experience. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, that obviously, you can't put them in a robox and do a study on it, you know, but you, right. you, you can... Oh, you could. <laughs> In China. <laughs> in China, they'll do yeah. Plus, don't forget, though, that whole point will become moot once we really nail yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, artificial intelligence <laughs> augmentation. Well, yeah, once so. the singularity's here, blah, blah, blah. We'll all be born. Yeah, well before that. <laughs> then we could hook him up to Jay's torso, give him a heart, lungs, kidney, and let him go, nu- and let him go nuts. All right, well, let's move on to who's that noisy. It's the time in the show when we play an audio clip that relates to science or skepticism in some way, and we ask the listeners to identify that noise. I'm going to play for you last week's Who's That Noisy? Tube is coated with a special chemical which lights up when the electrons hit it. 
And this is what makes the picture. Phineas J. Whoopi, you're a genius. <laughs> you almost forget about that character at certain times. and You realize he was one of the, well, as far as cartoons go, especially old cartoons, who's a good skeptic, good scientist. He was. You were a little l- science lesson built into every Tennessee tuxedo show. Yeah, in all of them. He was perfect. And then Tennessee and Chumsley would leave his office too quickly before he could really fully finally explain the repercussions or circum- right. certain they circumstances. They would always go off half-cocked. Who, right, who did the voice of Tennessee Tuxedo? Oh, come on. No, that's uh, not correct. Don Adams. Agent, Agent 86. Don Adams, yeah. yeah. Maxwell Smart. The voice of Phineas J. Whoopi was by the voice actor Larry Storch. No way. Yep. Um, uh, F Troop. F Troop. That's right. Is that really the guy from F Troop? That is. He that's, was Corporal Agar, the, the shorter guy. <laughs> the yeah, series F Troop. So he was the who? He was the, the older short, guy or the, the shorter guy? The shorter, the shorter dude. With dark what hair. is F Troop? Oh boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> is it like a Star Trek spinoff that I missed? <laughs> oh, no, no. oh boy. Very low uh, tech. How, how do you explain F Troop on a pod? Like on you a can't. It, podcast? It was a yeah. comedy based around. A Cowboys and Indus- Indians era fort. Era. In the, was this in the like West. from the 50s or whenever you guys were kids? No, it's, we were not kids in the 50s. 60s. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> late, late 60s, early 70s. Okay. F Troop, look it up. <laughs> they, they had reruns when we were kids, too. She really doesn't know what it is, guys. I know, it's sad. That's what Wikipedia's for. <laughs> now, uh, how old is Chu? Do we know how old Chu is? Chewbacca? I'm guessing he's in his 20s, but that's just a wild guess. Well, I think that's damn fine that someone in their 20s was the first person Wait, to guess why would correctly. You guess that? I don't know. Because he seems young that. at heart. Because, I don't know. Oh, and by the way, Chu, uh, Chu volunteered some time for me and did an enormous amount of grunt work. And I just want to thank him for that. Thank you, Chu. Gesundheit. Well, what do you got for this week, Evan? Here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? easy it's that new dubstep hit i was dancing at the club last weekend i I thought it was a popcorn popping did you notice the progression in speed as it got towards the end of the clip there i was telling it was slowly it's like random events that were increasing in frequency um exponentially exponent yes it did seem exponential to me as well Hmm. Hmm. well this is one to ponder this is a head scratcher i'd say well give it your best guess Post your answer on the forum or send us an email at info at skepticsguide.org. Good luck, everyone. Let's do one email this week. This one comes from James Russell from Australia, but his friends call him Jack. He owns a dog, I understand. Um, he writes... <laughs> I don't get it. A terrier. Jack Russell. Uh, Jack Russell. Uh, Jack Russell. I've terror. heard thorium reactors <laughs> mentioned several times since the Fukushima disaster started unfolding. They're supposed to be safer, cleaner, cheaper, and easier to build than the uranium reactors in use today. And apparently they've been known about for decades. First of all, are these claims correct? Are there any hidden downsides that aren't being mentioned? Secondly, I've heard it claimed the only reason these reactors haven't been built is because they can't be used to create nuclear weapons. Is that true? Kind of depressing if it is. Thanks, guys. Love the show. So we did 
talk about thorium reactors in the past. I think it was actually September of 2010 episode. You can find a show where we discussed it, and Bob wrote a blog at the same time about it. But we were getting a ton of emails about this because yeah. of the, the, the Japanese uh, reactor meltdown situation. So we thought we would just revisit this just very quickly to give an update on. I've actually been following this since we talked about it. I mean, the whole thorium thing. I've been reading about it every now and then because I'm very interested in it. And it's um, at the time, Bob, it seemed like we didn't really come to any significant or definitive conclusion, just that, yeah, there's lots of advantages to the thorium reactor. Such as um, that uh, thorium is abundant, especially in the, in the United States, uh, which would be a big, a big bonus. Uh, it creates less radiation and there's less radioactive waste material created as well. So those, those are some big, some big adv- advantages. And then the, another advantage is that uh, some people are saying that you can't, uh, you, you really you, you can't make nukes um, from from any of the waste, but I, I think the the consensus is that it's just you can, but it's just much much harder to do it, right? Yeah, essentially, this is an alternate fuel cycle for a nuclear reactor, a fission reactor, and and the thing is, we just don't have them. But with all the alleged advantages of thorium, why is it? Why don't we have thorium f- fission reactors for making our electricity rather than the uranium ones? And this is where I think the interesting question is, is, is why, why uranium and not thorium? Looking into this, it seems like there isn't one straightforward answer because there's a lot of factors that you can point to. And whenever that's the case... It's really it's impossible to prove that any one factor or small number of factors were definitive, and that the other you know to, to, how do you how do you decide how much of, of an effect each individual factor had? So here are some that get pointed to. One is that while we were developing our nuclear weapons program, that that provided a lot of research money to develop our uh, ability to to use and refine uranium and um, and learn about it. And that sort of gave a leg up to then spinning off a uranium-based fission reactor for for power, whereas thorium didn't have that advantage, and therefore it would have cost a lot more money in R&D to develop a, th- a thorium reactor. So it was just historical contingency giving an advantage to the uranium cycle. Not that we decided, oh, we can get uh, material for our nuclear weapons, so therefore let's support uranium and not thorium. It's just that we were already halfway there. Yeah, so right. it made it easier. I've also read, Bob, I don't know if you encountered this, but while thorium is more abundant than uranium, it's also much more diffuse. So it would be more costly to, to get it. So you're getting really, uranium, yeah. I think, Whereas uh, uranium you, is in deposits, you know, where you can go and can get a uranium deposit. Thorium is just basically spread throughout the crust. So, it, yes, there's a lot of it, but but it would cost more to to, to oh, get wow. it. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's important. But Steve, didn't the International Atomic Agency? Uh, I'm sorry, didn't the International Atomic Energy Agency release uh, some documentation recently, uh, specifically addressing the, these issues with with thorium thorium reactors and um, one of their take-homes was that it's just there's so many technological hurdles still yeah. know, yet yet to be overcome. There's a lot, a lot more research. I mean, probably scores of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars would be needed to really get to the point where it's, where they could say, yep, like we could build a reactor now. I mean, we're not really even close yeah. to, to doing that. 
Yeah, it's not like it's being suppressed or anything. Just the, the, the millions of dollars have not been invested to developing the, the actual technology. Because you would have to redesign the, the reactor. It's not like you can plug thorium fuel into a uranium reactor. It's a completely different process. Right. It's a different – it's a specific reactor cycle. Then yeah. also, then how do you handle the waste that is, that is produced? Yeah, how much does it heat up? How do you cool it off? All these things have to be specific right. to this kind of uh, reactor. Uh, so some some people mentioned the fact that after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, but but specifically in the United States, Three Mile Island, government money for new nuclear reactors and for research on you know, designing and building nuclear reactors basically dried up. So there was a you know, big phobia about nuclear reactors and and, and anything you know, like developing a new thorium cycle was killed by by that. I, th- I do. I do think those are um, the big, the big factors. I think it's primarily technological. We don't have the technology. We don't have the funding, or there isn't the really incentive to to invest in developing it. There may be now, however. I mean, it may be the kind of thing where, yeah, in fifty years, we're building a, a thorium reactor once we sort out all these problems and you know these technological problems. Um, some people think that it, it won't take off until uranium becomes more scarce and expensive. Then it becomes cost effective, which always seems to be the turning point. When something becomes cost effective, it happens. Yeah, people start freaking out. Yep. Before that, it needs massive government support. So, in the absence of massive government support, you need cost effectiveness in order. So maybe for it, maybe it does need to be weaponized. Then maybe hmm. that is yeah. um, <laughs> get the government <laughs> weapons grid. Always works. Yeah, that's why my puppy launcher never got made. Just <laughs> yeah, they couldn't turn couldn't it to a that's produce it on a large enough scale. It couldn't compete with the kitten launcher. <laughs> well, you mean the kitten collider? The kitten collider. It's oh. not a weapon, Steve. That's a scientific tool. Yeah, it's a research device. It can't be used until as a the military gets hold of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not meant for that, and I'll never allow it. Yes, but it yeah. can be used for that purpose. <laughs> never. <laughs> it's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? My olfactory senses are ready. So this week uh, I am not doing news items. I am just doing little-known or strange facts that I encountered on a certain website, which I will not mention up front. Is it pornographic? No, no, despite your wishes. I know you were really hoping it was going to be, but... A little bit. Okay. There's so three facts. You tell me what you guys think about them. Item number one, when the Inuit were first discovered by European explorers, they believed that they were the only humans in existence. Item number two, John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, born in 1790, has two living grandsons. And item number three, the aboriginal kook, Thayor, of northern Australia, have no words for left or right, but refer to all relative position in terms of north, south, east, and west. Bob, go first. All right, the Inuit. So they were surprised that there were other humans. Huh. Lots of Indian tribes interacted with other Indian tribes. Are you, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Um, well, I, I could clarify that, you know, that the only people they thought existed were, were other Inuit. So n- right. no, nobody that was not considered you know, what we would call part of the Inuit. I mean, yeah, it makes, I can't think of a reason why they, w- they wouldn't think that. Um, that's nothing unusual. Let's see. Let's go to the second one. 1790, two living grandsons? 
Oh boy, 200 years. That doesn't sound right. Let's see. The third one, the Aboriginal Kuk the Yoi. By the way, it's K U U K. I'm not. I'm just guessing on the pronunciation. Yeah. It could be Kuak. Kuak. Yeah, I've read. I've heard so many bizarre things about other languages that uh, the fact that they might don't have anything specific for left or right. Yeah, I mean, I, I could totally see that as well. I think you could potentially pull off the grandson thing, but man, you need to be living a long time. And now's the part of the show where you give your answer. <laughs> this, is, this is good, Steve. All right, so three. Now I'm buying yeah. <laughs> three. Yeah. Number two. All right, I'm going to say the Inuit. Inuit fiction. <laughs> okay. Jay? All right. So when the Inuit were first discovered, they thought they were the only humans in existence. Yeah, there's something about that one that, that doesn't seem right to me. I would imagine that they would have encountered somebody else, some other tribes. You know, there are African tribes that, at least there used to be African tribes that, that hadn't experienced the outside world. So, I mean, of course it's possible, but it doesn't seem likely. Uh, John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, who was born in 1790, has two living grandsons. That definitely is possible, so I really can't argue against that. And the Aboriginal Cook Thayer. Did you make that name up, Steve? Oh, yeah. Of I mean, no, no, no. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have words That's for good. left or right. When you think about that, it just seems so intuitive that you would just come up with left and right from your relative position and not from the empirical position of direction. God damn, that is weird to think that people would actually do that. But I, I, I actually, I'm not going to say no to that either. So I was going to pick number one, so I'm going to go with number two. The uh, the two living grandsons are definitely not alive. Okay, Evan? Well, the one about the Inuit were first discovered by European explorers. Then the European explorers believed that they were the only humans in existence. See, I think you guys have all been reading this question wrong. It's a misplaced modifier. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you did, Steve? Seems reasonable. Now, for the 10th president of the United States, born in 1790, have, to have two living grandsons, even if he fathered children at the age of 60, all right, let's say that's extreme, 60, so it was 1850 in which he fathered those kids, and then those kids grew up, and let's say that they fathered kids who, at their, at their age of 60, that puts you at 1910, and that means the two grandsons would be 100 years old right now. I'm having a hard time buying that one. And then you've got the aboriginal people uh, with no words for left or right. I guess they never went into caves much, you know. (laughs) (laughs) know, South and east in the cave, and how do you figure that out? That seems very peculiar. Why would you designate four directions as opposed to eight directions or six directions? Or why why would it be one or the other, right? I mean, left, right yeah, makes sense. You've got two sides to your body. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive, I know. So why would you make it all of a sudden four directions, north, south, east, west? Why well, it's not necessarily four either. It's because it could be south, southeast, you know. Yeah, yeah they, but when they, I'm, they reference the the points of the compass, not not anything relative. It also means there's no front or back either. It's just everything is relative to the compass points. Um, John Tyler. Is a fiction. No. Two living grandsons, each 100 years old. I'd be very surprised at that. That goes against the numbers, and I'll... Thank you. Okay. That one's fiction. (laughs) Rebecca. All right. I'll try to make it brief. I I have huge problems with the idea that Inuit 
believed they were the only humans in existence before being discovered by European explorers. Mostly, like the question or the the statement itself is nonsensical to me um, because Inuit refers to not one small population, you know, one isolated population. It refers to a huge expanse of native people from Canada through Greenland to Siberia. It's it's a huge expanse of people and some of them must have had contact particularly with like Native Americans because I'm fairly certain that tribes of North American Inuit worked their way down south and interacted with and maybe even became, I'm not sure, um, Native American people. So I think that that one is BS. Okay. So you all agree that the Aboriginal Kuwak Theor of Northern Australia have no words for left or right, but refer to all relative position in terms of north, south, east, and west. And this one is science. That one is true. I did find all these three items from the same website, but then I did independently source them. Smart. Uh, Yes, because I didn't trust the site at all. And this one, this one took a long time because I had to Mad find magazine. out. com, right? All, all the sources led back to the same uh, source. Yeah. You know how that happens? Yeah. Yeah. You start reading oh, the sure. same quote over and over again. But it, it, it dates back, it all goes back to uh, a website, edge.org. And there is an article here by a linguist, Lara Borodetsky, who's arguing that the, 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 the notion is whether or not language affects the way we think. And she gives this as one of her examples uh, that the Kuwak Theor talk about space. Instead of words like right, left, forward, or back, they use references to the compass points no matter where they are and no matter what the scale is. So they would say like so-and-so was to the east of that tree, not to the left of it or behind it or whatever. They would always skate. Or you're about to get hit by that spear coming from the south-southwest. South-southwest, right. I guess they, this partly does come from spending a lot of time outside <laughs> where you have some kind of reference. But it also means that just as they're, they're walking around their day-to-day lives, they always have know which way they're facing with respect to yeah. the compass points. You know, that's just they live with that bit of information. Perfect sense of direction. Yeah, yeah well, that, their ma- head. that makes sense. You, you sunrise, sunset, and everything else falls into place. Yeah, but even still, guys, I mean, it's still – I mean, look at all the information we have today about direction and everything, and I think we're, we're – insanely blind to direction. You mean if you put a blindfold on, Jay, and spun around then took it off and you looked around, you couldn't tell which way was which? Uh, no. I don't even know which fa- way I'm facing right now. You guys remember that uh, Honeymooners talk uh, game show? There, there was a famous uh, one where they, they – this is where they had to take Honeymooners and the, the, the bit is that they're supposed to find out how much they know about each other. So they asked questions about – themselves and each other. No, no, newlyweds. The newlyweds. The game. newlyweds. What was I saying? Yeah. Honeymoons. The honeymoons. Oh, honeymoons. I was thinking about something else entirely. Like, the newlyweds show. You guys remember the newlyweds show? The yeah. Newlyweds it was, oh, that I remember. Yeah. It was on right after F Troop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there was one famous episode where they asked the question, in your neighborhood, where does the sun rise? In what direction? And like most of them didn't say the east. They said like, <laughs> really? oh, in our neighborhood, I think it rises in the west. Oh, boy. There was also the, where's the craziest place you've ever made whoopee? And she said, in the butt. In the washing machine. In the butt. <laughs> in the, in the, 
I'd have to say in the butt. That's what she said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, making whoopee was their term for, you know. <laughs> is that your term for? <laughs> Steve goes home and says, hey, honey, I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> know what I mean? Know what I mean? All right, so uh, we'll, keep, we'll keep going in reverse order here. Number two, John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, born in 1790, has two living grandsons. Jay and Evan, you think this is fiction. Bob and Rebecca, you think this one is true. And this one is science. This is yeah. true. I Rebecca. seem to recall him being notable for being like a very old father. I didn't oh, yes. know about the grandfather part, be. but yeah, well, I like remember I had a book or something of like okay, whatever. famous facts about presidents, and like that was the notable thing about him <laughs> that he he was an old father. He had lots of sad. kids through several women. Yep, um, some slaves get, too. Yeah, and slaves if you include them. He did uh, remarry when he was older, and he had children in his seventies. Evan, this is where your calculations were a little bit off. And some of his children had children in their 70s. So John Tyler uh, married Julia they got Gardner. They sexy grandpa gene. Right. And in, in the 1840s, fathered seven more children, one of which was Lion Gardner Tyler, who also remarried when he was older to one Sue Ruffin, uh, who lived from 1889 to 1853 and had three children, including the two living grandchildren. Uh, Harrison Ruffin Tyler uh, and his older brother Lion Gardner Tyler Jr. So the the most recent reference I can find was from 2010. Uh, at the time, they were they were both still alive in their 80s, uh, 82 and 85. Could not find anything more recent, but I couldn't find anything to say that they were not still alive. So it's possible they died in the last few months or so. But oh, good. as far as the most well, recent reference I could find, they were both still alive. Yeah, it's so do, cool. Do, well, I wonder if they have, uh, like, if they had children very old as well. Yeah, they should. They should get busy right now. You think you'd have, have to, right? I mean, wouldn't you <laughs> literally wouldn't you get see busy. that? I would see that as my duty. So 80, 80 years from now, somebody on a show like this could say that you know, John Tyler has a living great-grandchild. Yeah. 1790, 10th president, grandchildren, just to, you know, your, your immediate reaction is, no way. Yeah, absolutely. Then you yeah. do the calculations, like, yeah, you know, it's like, it is right at the very edge of plausibility in terms of the numbers. It's because and then they, they have two of them. Yeah. Which means? Which means that <laughs> when the Inuit were first discovered by European explorers, they believed that they were the only humans in existence is complete and utter fiction. High Ooh. five, Bob. Oh, yeah, baby. Wow, this, you guys had this last week, too. Yeah, I yeah. Know. We're yeah. on a roll. Yeah. So then, But interestingly, the website that I derived all three of these from portrayed this as a true statement, which didn't sound right uh. to me. And when I tried to source <laughs> it, I found out that it's, it's just not true. Oh, awesome. So that's, of course, it's a perfect fiction because it's being sold on the internet as something that's true. Uh, and Rebecca, I think your analysis was the, was the closest to what I was reading. In fact, the Inuit, which, uh, remember, they used to be called Eskimos. Uh, Eskimo was a term applied to native populations in essentially in and around the Arctic region. Uh, in Canada, Alaska, um, Russia, and you know Siberia, and in in those areas, but uh, they were called by other Indian tribes Eskimos, which means eaters of raw flesh. But they called themselves Inuit, which is just the word in their language for the people. 
Now the the histories that I, I that I read from a couple of sources say that yeah they were trading with other Indian tribes to the south. I mean they were, they were definitely aware of of other peoples and populations. Just to be absolutely sure, I throw in threw in European explorers because before the Europeans, like the English, ever encountered the Inuit of North America, they were being slaughtered by the Russians. Well, the the Vikings would have been the first Europeans to... Well, there was, there was um, Viking contact previous to that, that's true, and later Russian contact. But throughout all of that, they were actively... There was actually a very vibrant trade with trade routes and an economy with other Indian tribes, other like Native American tribes. And so they, you know, they, yeah, they, no point did they think that. They, you know, again, it kind of sounds, it sounds like one of those urban legends because you think, oh, yeah, they're living up there in the Arctic Circle and they, maybe they thought they were the only people uh, on Earth, but, but re- really it was never true. But I mean, there are some pretty isolated tribes uh, in, in certain locations. I know I've won, some I've heard about in South America, but, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't know that there was any outside. Uh, yeah. People, yeah. Good job, Bob and Rebecca. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Took you long enough, Bob, but you eventually got there. <laughs> I like I like the trivia based uh, science or fiction questions. I find those a lot easier than Do news you? items because sometimes it takes me a while to read the news. But yeah, trivia I can get. Yeah. Okay. Do more of those. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> It's it's in a way it's easier because I could find items easier, but then I got to sourcing them can take a long time. You basically yeah. trying to source an internet legend is is tough. Uh, well, Jay, do you have a, a uh, quote for this week? I have a quote that was sent in by Shig the Unmentionable. <laughs> well, you just blew that. Yeah, I mean, who would call their kid Shig? Anyway, this is a quote from David Brin, and Ooh, it I also love him. Re- yeah. it also relates uh, to what something. Uplift. Uplift Wars. Great, great trilogy. It also relates to something we mentioned earlier in the show. See if you can guess what it is. The quote is, If an outsider perceives something wrong with a core scientific model, the humble and justified response of that curious outsider should be to ask, What mistake am I making? Before assuming 100% of the experts are wrong. David Brin! (laughs) And the David Brin Orchestra. I liked your phrasing on that, Jay. That was particularly eloquent. Guys, when people commence to listen in a, to this episodic adventure of ours, <laughs> yeah, where will we be? We will be in New York City, the Big Apple, at Nexus. That's right. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, or if you're listening to it on XM, we are at Nexus in New York. woo No, but it means they missed and if, it. And if you're not there... Where the hell are you? Jay, there are, I'm sure there will be some people who are listening to this episode at Nexus. That's true. Or people that are, can't make it to Saturday and are just coming on Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Quiet. Steve, can I, can I give a, a quick shout-out to two fans that said they would lose their minds if we mentioned them on the <laughs> show? I just want to say hi to Aaron and Samir. They're Aaron? in Cork. They're in Cork. Cork? Cork? Yes. Cork's bar? Cork's what? bar. <laughs> Cork. Cork, Ireland? I'm going to be in Ireland. I'm going to be in Dublin. In June for the International Atheist Conference. They should come and see me and say hello. Well, thank you for joining me again this week, everyone. Thank Thank you, Steve. Steve. Thanks, Doc. And until next week, which, by the way, will be our 300th episode live from New York, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zune, or your portal of choice. Theorem is performed by Kineto and used with permission.